Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Mark I. Lurie about his biography of the 20th century literary critic and translator, Louis Galantier, entitled Galantier, The Lost Generation's Forgotten Man. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I'm, uh, I'm 74 years old. And people ask me whether this is what my next book is going to be, (laughs) which I find a bit ironic. I actually didn't intend to write this book. I was told by my sister about a distant relative we had who may have been influential in literature or politics. What did I know about him? It turns out that I had met his sister, Ida, but I knew nothing about him, including his existence. So I was given the name by my sister. And I said, I'll see what I can find out. And then five years passed without my doing anything. (laughs) But uh, I went to uh, an online search engine and entered his name and found that his papers were at uh, Columbia University, the uh, Butler Rare Books and Manuscripts Library. I called there and they were very generous with their time and assistance. They arranged for me to come, and when I arrived, there were 30 or 35 boxes of papers, thousands of pages, all laid out and ready for me. Uh, I had come prepared not to read them there. I came with a camera and uh, photographed the pages and spent probably the next six or eight months going through them and seeing what they had to say, still just doing research for the pleasure of learning about a relative with no intention of writing a book. But um, two years down the pike, having visited the University of Pennsylvania and Princeton and the JFK Library, I found that there there was the makings of a book. And so I set about writing one. And I must say, I enjoyed the research much more than the writing. (laughs) I I think there are uh, quite a few people who can definitely relate to that sentiment. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, it was interesting that how uh, I, the, reading this book and learning about Louis Galantier was interesting on two levels. One was, you know, who he was and, and this really remarkable life that he led as a author and, and, and friend of authors. But also it was as you explain, uh, you, uh, you know, indirectly in, in uh, you infer with the end of the book when you quote his New York Times obituary, that it's a life that required a little bit of detective work to get past some of the misrepresentations that he himself made about it. For example, he presented himself as uh, being the, the the son of these uh, of a French family, and, and as you explained that that his uh, background was actually very different. Yes, he presented himself as the son of a French father a Swiss mother, a man who was uh, schooled in the classics, who wrote um, margins in the text of Greek and uh, 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 German works, and um, who was a, uh, an intellectual soulmate. In fact, his parents escaped the pogroms of uh, Latvia in 1888, uh, took a, a boat ride, to the United States, settled in Chicago. His father was a failed tobacconist. And after the, the uh, peddler trade, the tobacconist was the second most common trade because it was quite easy to enter. The man spoke Yiddish. If he spoke English, was a, it was with a thick Yiddish accent. He was very old world. And in fact, uh, Lewis and his father were alienated um, at a very, fairly young age. Lewis, the, the uh, one fortunate 
part of Lewis's early life was that they were in Chicago where the settlement house um, schools were available to um, to foster and, and encourage students. Um, they could progress as quickly as their talents allowed. And Lewis, at a very young age, in his teen years, early teen years, had mastered French and uh, literature. He could uh, he could analyze and discuss many topics. And his his teachers thought that this was this was, was somebody who was going to have a, an intellectual impact uh, uh, on uh, in America. And they predicted that he would be uh, he would go on to college and. Uh, uh, and make be a name, but uh, shall I continue? Oh, uh, pl- please do. I, uh, go right ahead. Well, his uh, this uh, this all ended with the uh, the failure of the Knickerbocker Bank run in uh, eighteen oh five. I'm sorry, nineteen oh five, nineteen oh eight. His um, his father was one of four brothers. The other three were in a printer bindery business, so it did quite well, but his father's business was quite poor and they lived in tenements for his first 13 years. But uh, with the Knickerbocker bank failure, all businesses contracted. The printing bindery business could support only one of the three brothers. The other two and Joseph Gallantier, Lewis's father, moved out to Los Angeles, which was then actually advertising itself as a cure for tuberculosis. And uh, uh, it was in in uh, in Los Angeles, his uncles made clear to him that they weren't going to support the family. They expected Lewis to make his contribution as well. So he didn't complete grade school. He went to work as a clerk for the Santa Fe Railroad, but continued his self-education outside of the classroom that theme uh, of, of uh, runs through his early life it, it wasn't so much that he didn't have the ability it was that he didn't have the opportunity and you and you could tell uh from and this uh recurs throughout the book which is the degree to which as america is becoming more about credentials and education that that, that he felt that keenly I, I was thinking about that as far early as his entry into that los angeles uh library uh librarian training program and and how uh he gave himself a year in college that he actually had never had and and how he uh you know completed this training program successfully and that gave him legitimate credentials but it kind of points to this thing that uh this uh issue that crops up time and again which is where he doesn't have that college education but he's able in a sense to get away with it still oh yes in two ways um Number one, that he never did speak about what, what you're referring to is that the Los Angeles public library system offered a uh, course in how to become a librarian. And he took uh, the entrance exam in 1914 and passed it. And he was the only only man or boy in a class of 14. Uh, but just uh, just as an example of the now, he's self-taught, just as an example of the kinds of questions he was asked. One of the questions is, the first one is, make an outline of English literature from the time of Chaucer, giving the periods with approximate dates and the principal writers in each. <laughs> well, uh, and I could go on. And, and, uh, uh, with, and it, the, uh, the scope of the knowledge required, as well as the depth was jaw-dropping, he passed. And he was admitted. Now, he never he never said that he went to the librarian school because I think he was embarrassed by that. But there is no doubt that 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 experience uh, is what he based or what what gave him, uh, let's say, the confidence to review books. And that is what he did after his graduation. He uh, moved back to Chicago and went to work as a salesman salesman for Croke's Bookstore in Chicago. And this was the time of the uh, Chicago, what was called the Chicago Renaissance, where um, uh, Chicago and New York were vying for uh, preeminence in the new new brand of American literature. 
That's where Sherwood Anderson wrote uh, his book, Winesburg, Ohio, which really set off the naturalist trade. And, there, and then there was uh, Carl Sandburg and, and Ben Hecht, and Ring Lardner, and Theodore Dreiser. And uh, it, this, they all gathered at Croak's bookstore, where Lewis was a salesman. And he started writing um, literary criticism and lit- book reviews for the newspapers in the area and the Dial, which was a very prestigious uh, literary review at the time. You That's described how it, you described it as as the most prestigious literary review at the time, too. Correct. That's right. So it was, and he was twenty one years old. And doing this, he uh, he formed a very fast friendship with uh, Sherwood Anderson, the one that lasted their lifetime. And uh, uh, it was uh, Sherwood, in fact. Uh, I, I, I'm going to jump ahead a bit, but Lewis mentored Hemingway during their first, Hemingway's first year in Paris, and it was Sherwood Anderson who put the two of them together. At the uh, in Chicago, Lewis uh, Sherwood was something of a mentor to Hemingway, and he sent him off. Hemingway wanted to go back to Italy to uh, to relive his war experiences with his bride Hadley, uh, but uh, Sherwood said, "No, not Italy. Go to go to Paris. That's where it's happening." And they and he did. What was it that brought Lewis himself to Paris? Though, how how did he go from Chicago to Paris in just a few short years? One of the one of the truly startling things is the just the they say that fortune favors the prepared mind. But Lewis certainly had extraordinary fortune. He was uh, he was a librarian. He was working for the San Diego Library and they lent him out to the army. This is World War One to uh, essentially run a bookmobile. He did it effectively and the army hired him to run their library services nationwide. When uh, the war ended and the soldiers were coming home, the army established a school outside of Chicago to teach soldiers how to become librarians. And the one of the guest speakers at that was a fellow named Frederick Paul Capel, who was the dean of uh, had been the dean of Columbia College. He had been tapped to head the International Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. legation, in Paris uh, after the war. And of course, their interest there was of the, of the Chamber of Commerce was to get U.S. war loans repaid and to get contractors uh, their fair share of the reconstruction. And uh, he was a guest speaker at Lewis's library school. And when he saw that Met Lewis, he thought this guy would be excellent as my secretary, my executive secretary. He speaks French. He knows uh, uh, something about how to run an organization. He was running the school. So he said to Lewis, how would you like to go to France? (laughs) (laughs) And Lewis Lewis said yes. And uh, so they did in um, late 1920, December 1920. They sailed to, uh, to France. So these interactions with the uh, people like, say, Hemingway, uh, you know, Gertrude Stein, so forth, w- that, that he has in Paris, was this uh, an, a, uh, an offshoot of his uh, work for the International Chamber of Congress, uh, Commerce, or was he doing this in his spare time? Uh, he was doing this in his spare time, although um – one of the people he befriended in Chicago was another book review, reviewer named Burton Rasco. Burton also has been neglected by history, unjustifiably. I thought he was a very creative and a very smart fellow. Uh, Burton at the time was literary editor for the New York Tribune. And Lewis wanted to earn a little bit of money. So he suggested to uh, Burton, uh, why don't I write a weekly column from Paris talking about what's going on? Burton was reluctant. At first he said no, but after two or three letters, he said, send me a column. We'll see how it works. It worked very well. And Burton after that was big, was very enthusiastic. The uh, 
140 columns later, Lewis was established as the American voice in Paris. And, uh, and it was in that context that uh, he, he met and was exposed to all of the writers who came to, uh, to Paris. Um, in, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask your indulgence here. I guess I can't find it. The letter that um, Sherwood Anderson gave to Hemingway to give to Lewis is charming. Talks about this young man, Hemingway, who wants to be an author. Hemingway had been turned down by everybody. Every article he sent into the uh, Saturday Evening Post had been rejected. (laughs) I'm sure the Saturday Evening Post was kicking itself three years later when The Sun Also Rises came out to national acclaim. But uh, um, he uh, he was very unsure of himself and uh, spent a lot of time at the Dome, that restaurant in uh, in Paris, uh, speaking to other writers, but really not getting traction. And he was very frustrated and possibly depressed at that time. You described the uh, in some of the. Uh, escapades of uh galanteer with uh, hemingway and he that sense of insecurity is definitely there such as that boxing match that you uh, open the book with where where hemingway challenges galanteer to uh a, 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 to spar and, and and you describe how galanteer is not quite uh you know in hemingway's uh you know doesn't have hemingway's need to demonstrate his masculinity but he steps up and does it anyway it's it's, it's rather a humorous tale well, uh, Hemingway towered. This is this is what happened. Lewis took uh, Hemingway, Ernest, and Hadley out to dinner, and uh, and uh, Ernest to talk, of course, talked about boxing, which was a great avocation of his. He had been involved in a, a demonstration match on the boat over, and uh, had soundly beaten his adversary. Lewis had had a little bit of boxing experience at a uh, training camp in the army uh, out West. And he talked about that and he was very good with voices um, imitating people. And he imitated this boxer quite well. Hadley was charmed. And the more Hadley was charmed, the more, uh, uh, Oh, let's say provoked. Ernest was. And Ernest said to Lewis, I happen to have two pair of boxing gloves back at my room. Why don't we do a little sparring? Now, what kind of person carries around two pairs of boxing gloves? <laughs> but uh, so uh, so Ernest, uh, I'm sorry, Lewis, probably not want to appear, appear the coward or maybe not wanting to disappoint uh, Sherwood Anderson, said yes. And um, they put on the gloves. Now, Lewis was five foot five, 137 pounds, and Hemingway was over six feet and very muscular. And they uh, they stepped into an area, and uh, Hadley pretended she was ringing a bell, and they they parried and they they uh, skipped and touched gloves and all. Nobody landed a real hit. And uh, three minutes went by, and Hadley uh, sounded another bell. I'm sure Lewis was relieved. And he stepped to the uh, side of the room and he took off a glove and he removed his glasses and he turned toward Hemingway just as Hemingway was approaching and sucker punched Lewis in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that might have ended things. But um, I guess Lewis wanted to show that he was the kind of guy who could take it. And uh, Hemingway certainly was the kind of guy who wasn't going to burn a bridge before he had crossed it. So uh, they made amends and... uh, in fact, uh, Lewis was uh, instrumental in finding the the uh, Hemingways a place to live, and him and introducing him to uh, uh, Ezra Pound and uh, others. And Ezra Pound was very influential, I think, most influential in Hemingway's style of writing, which was completely different from Lewis's. Uh, there is uh, one tale that's told by Hemingway of how when he first met uh, Ezra Pound, he was put off. He thought he was uh, too uh, too out there, 
too avant-garde, too much of a pretender. And he wrote a rather scathing satire of Pound, which he was going to offer for publication. And Lewis said to him, I wouldn't quite do that because the, the magazine you're going to offer this to, he works for them for free. <laughs> he serves as their advisor. They aren't going to publish it. And you're going to have a, a city full of uh, enemies if you try to do this. So he, Ernest tore it up and was very glad he did. He spoke of it later. And uh, it was Pound probably who had the greatest influence because he was the one who insisted that that Hemingway use spare prose, use no word that doesn't convey something is what uh, Pound told Hemingway. Uh, It was advice that Hemingway heeded. And you can see the change in his writing from that time on. It was much more disciplined and what he left out was as important as what he kept in. You uh, described, though, in your book that uh, what Galantier did was not just befriend writers or uh, provide them with advice or even just review their books, but he also was engaged in this very interesting work involving translation. For example, he helped Sherwood Anderson uh, translate uh, one of his books uh, early in his uh, stay in Paris. I was wondering if you could explain what led him into translation work and, and, and what it was that he did, who, uh, uh, what sort of books did he translate, and, and, and how did he, uh, you know, what, what did he bring to the translation effort? Uh, what he brought was a, an uh an English vocabulary and knowledge of how to use it. He never translated from English to French. His French was not all that good. Despite his fiction of having spent years in France, he did not. But he could take he could understand a concept expressed in French and translate it into English so that it was better than the original French was. and uh, there are examples that I provide in my book where I, I give the French, I give a strict French translation, and I give Lewis's translation. And you can see how his images are more evocative than the, than the, uh, than the literal French translation into English. All of his translations were into English. He was adept at it and did it quickly. And at several times in his life, when that was the only employment he had, and translators were paid a small uh, a pittance because they were thought to be you know, scriveners. Volume was important. And uh, he grew expert at it. He did a good job. It was during this period that he also uh, met and married his first wife, Dorothy. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about their relationship and how it changed as his time in France came to an end. Oh, well, Dorothy was was uh, his first infatuation and may have been his first sexual experience. Uh, he was besotted and Dorothy um, was the first in a line of women who were manic depressives, whom he was romantically involved with. Um, and she was a, an amazing narcissist. Something that uh, Ernest um, <laughs> took exception to, probably because he uh, he lived so closely to it himself. Um, but she uh, she uh, she saw Lewis as a rising star, and uh, she liked the limelight of that came with that. Um, that changed. Well, first of all, Louis, Dorothy became a bone of contention between the Hemingways and uh, Lewis. Um, neither Hadley nor Ernest particularly liked Dorothy. They found her selfish and needy and um, clingy and untruthful. And uh, when uh, when Dorothy thought that Lewis had spoken, well, that he he had been responsible for the falling out between them. Lewis actually never fell out with Hemingway. The two of them remained friends, but the couples fell out. And Lewis and uh, Dorothy sent a letter to Hadley 
attributing it to Lewis and what she called his cowardice is is um, is causing this uh, perturbation, but not owning up to it. And uh, Ernest got the letter and wrote a scathing letter to Dorothy in which, uh, oh, he eviscerated her. Now, the the sad part about this, it it probably rolled off Dorothy's shoulders, but uh, Dorothy's mother was a woman who would have appeared in a Hemingway novel. She had character, perseverance, dignity, she was gentle, she was kind, and she was dying of tuberculosis through all of it. And uh, she persevered despite that. And I think that she was a model for what Ernest valued in life and in his novels. Uh, She returned to the United States to die. And uh, Ernest wrote Dorothy a condolence note, which was very sweet which uh, Dorothy construed as a uh, amending of the relationship, which it was not, uh, because uh, Ernest continued to, uh, in his correspondence to others, to say, (laughs) I'm quoting, what a copper-plated bitch Dorothy was. Um, When Lewis, when Lewis, uh, Lewis eventually lost his job at the International Chamber of Commerce, because they decided they wanted an economist a uh, a um, degreed economist, and Lewis was not. So uh, he he went back to New York with Dorothy, thinking that he would be able to find a job and find work on the basis of the credential he had established as um, uh, with his Paris newsletter criticisms. He couldn't get a job. He finally landed one with uh, Condé Nast. But it wasn't a writing job. Candy Nass wanted him to do uh, a, a business assessment, an assessment of his news, of his magazines, which Lewis did. And then uh, when that job ended, he was unemployed and he set about writing his uh, his translations. But the limelight was lost. Uh, uh, the promise of fame, the implicit promise of fame that Lewis had offered to Dorothy disappeared. And Dorothy got on a boat and went back to Paris, where she uh, she decided she had danced in the chorus in New York before going to New York, uh, before going to uh, Paris. She uh, I think she was 16 at the time. Now she was, uh, I think, in her mid 20s, late 20s. And she had a hunch that if she could have a one person show that she would choreograph and perform. She might uh, become uh, the equivalent of a Josephine Baker for another crowd. So uh, she went back to Paris, had an affair with a a sculptor, a Palm Beach sculptor who financed her one-person show, created playbills, and I found... uh, Gertrude Stein's copy of the playbill among her papers at the JFK library and had her show, which was not greeted well. The critics, uh, <laughs> yes, the, uh, I, I'm afraid I don't have my book open to it now, but um, uh, as the French critics especially were a little cruel. I, I the uh, it was uh, Andre Levinson's one who who I uh, the criticism I liked the most. He wrote that Dorothy had quote sought in vain to relieve her entire lack of ability by a touch touch of suggestiveness, and then as you write, he advised that in the future she confine her performances to private salons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ooh, isn't that savage? <laughs> uh, well, um, Lewis back in. Uh, in New York, uh, he was working on a, a book, his, in fact, the only book of a non-political nature he ever produced, which was a satire called France is Full of Frenchmen. He, uh, he was working on that and doing his translations and was hit by a bout with a bout of appendicitis, which sidelined him and further cut his, uh, his income. And as he was recuperating, 
he had an affair with Iris Barry. Some people may know that name. She was the first director of MoMA's film uh, library. Uh, and it was, uh, they knew it was only going to be an interlude because Iris was married and Lewis was married and Iris was going to go back to, uh, to London. But, uh, and I only have Iris's side. The book only contains Iris's correspondence with Lewis, but I think they are deftly written and, uh, poignant and talk, they talk about, uh, Hollywood. Uh, she was a film critic and uh, film analyst, and uh, uh, she talks about uh, oh Charlie Chaplin, and she was there with the in crowd and Douglas Fairbanks, but also about her children, things that weren't previously known, including that uh, she had two children by uh, Wyndham Lewis, a rather bizarre and intense and nasty painter and author in uh, in London, although I, I think they lived in Paris for a while. And uh, she had two children whom she placed with different families. She decided she was going to attempt motherhood with her older daughter. She tried it, it didn't work, and she placed both of them in a, uh, I won't say it was an orphanage, but a, a, an extended foster home without revealing to them that they were brother and sister, and then dreaded the consequences that might ensue if they found each other attractive. <laughs> but that, uh, that didn't come to pass, fortunately. Iris, uh, Iris eventually did return to the United States where she and Lewis were cordial, and he eventually wrote a nice review for one of her books. Um, she did not stay in the United States uh, during the uh, McCarthy era because he had had some contact with uh, Soviets, uh, uh, Soviet sympathizers, and she was hounded out of the country, essentially, and returned to France. You mentioned that uh, Galantier only wrote uh, the one book that, as you said, was not of a political nature. But during this period in the early 1930s, he does have this collaboration with another very famous name, or soon a uh, 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 man who's going to become famous in the future, which was John Houseman. And what was it that they were working on, and, and, and what was the uh, fruit of that collaboration? Well, uh, Lewis... Um, <laughs> Lewis, when he was recovering from his appendectomy and he saw he, he thought he would be evicted because uh, he, he just ran out of money. He got a knock on the door from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. They wanted to hire him because here was a fellow who had who had been in contact with all of the financial uh, movers and shakers in France and uh, they needed somebody, not necessarily a banker, but somebody who was uh, who knew their culture, could speak their language, who knew their sensibilities and yet could understand something of finance. And, and the reason they tapped him was that at this time, the French franc was going into hyperinflation. The uh, French budget was out of control. They were spending money in anticipation of getting money from Germany in the form of reparations. Of course, those reparations never happened, and it was a pipe dream uh, probably from the start. The money that they eventually did get was American short-term loans from Germany funneled back through to uh, France's reparations. But Lewis uh, and uh, the Federal Reserve official, uh, officials uh, went to back to Paris um, but by the way, during that trip, uh, they set up at the offices of uh, J.P. Morgan and Company and dealt with the uh, French Central Bank. Uh, during that trip, Lewis did arrange to meet with Dorothy Butler, his wife, and asked for a divorce, which she gave him on the condition that uh, he said she, he would represent on the divorce certificate that uh, he had abandoned her. Well, the uh, the cure for the the American, the Federal Reserve Bank thought that the cure for the French economy, or at least the French franc, was to tie it more closely to gold, 
to uh, stop spending money as if there were going to be reparations. And uh, one other element, which now eludes me, but it worked. The French franc stabilized and in fact increased in value and became one of the more reliable um, currencies uh, during the 1930s. So Galantier has this very interesting job. And what I was thinking of as I was reading those passages about how, you know, during the, the, the Great Depression, he's still employed by the Federal Reserve Bank. And he has this amazingly secure existence for somebody who is a writer and how that contrasts with John Hausman, who, as you explained, oh, was, yes. was not, a, was not a, a writer to start out. He was actually a grain merchant who had this enormous uh, 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 uh you know, nervously troubled uh, uh, fall uh, financially speaking. Well, yes, I, I will describe that. He uh, he spoke with a kind of a British accent, which lent him great credibility, and he turned out to be a wonderful salesman. Uh, so um, he was working. He got a job for the Continental Grain Company in St. Louis. They taught him what it took to be a grain trader. Well, he, in his first year, did fabulously well. So uh, a private investor came to him and said, I'll set you up with a business in New York. Uh, it, they call it the Oceanic Grain Corporation. I'll pay you. And now, now bear in mind, at the time he was, uh, I think, 27 years old. I'll pay you $275,000 a year and 5% of the profits. Well, uh, uh, he jumped at the chance and created this uh, corporation. Now, Lewis, of course, dealt when he came back from France, his job was uh, information, gathering information about international trade and sharing it uh, to the extent that was necessary in order to elicit information. Uh, and he and Lewis would have lunch together, Hausman and Lewis. Hausman, by the way, won himself an Academy Award a few years later for his uh, it was four decades later for his role as Professor Charles Kingsfield in a paper chase. You, you might remember him. Uh, Mr. Hot, <laughs> please stand and explain uh, contract law. Um, very intimidating presence. Well, he and Lewis uh, would have lunch together and um he, he felt himself the, uh, a merchant prince in New York because he, he was young, he had a fabulous income, and he met and within a month married uh, Zita Johan, who was a leading actress at the time. He went out and rented himself a, a penthouse apartment, had it completely furnished. It was very nice, and they, they were the golden couple in New York. Now, uh, John's practice in the grain business was to find a seller to him, find a buyer from him, and finance the difference, always having a fairly safe margin, a profit, between the purchase price and the sale price. <laughs> and so uh, on October 24th, Black Thursday, when the markets uh, started to implode, he felt comfortable because he knew that he had all of his purchases covered, all of his loans covered with buyers who had signed contracts. And one by one, the buyers started defaulting because their customers said, I can't afford it. I can't make these purchases. One after another. So that finally, well, they, they started, they started uh, post-dating checks then they started not answering phones, and then they closed the door. And in early 1930, this Oceanic Trading Company, the Oceanic Grain Company, closed its doors, still owing about $200,000, leaving John worse than penniless because he thought, this seems like a good deal. I'll, I'll borrow $17,000 and invest in the business. So he was $17,000 in debt. He had a two years to run on a penthouse lease. He had not paid for the furnishings. And in 1930, he would earn not $275,000, but $275. <laughs> uh, so it was a far come down. 
And uh, obviously he defaulted on the lease. He walked away from the furniture. And he thought that maybe, maybe he could write. He attempted to do that for six months. He always had a notion that, that he had a talent for it. And six months without a word on paper proved that he was wrong. His wife, Zita Johan, suggested that they co-write a play, which they did. And uh, they found uh, a venue for it, which was the Berkshire Playhouse in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which agreed to put it on, provided that Zita played the lead, uh, which she did. Um, By the way, she took credit as a co-author, but not under her own name, under the name Joan Wolfe. When uh, the opportunity came along for Zita to uh, to join a roadshow of Uncle Vanya, she did. She left New York. And that was when uh, John Houseman turned to Lewis because Lewis had a reputation of having been a literary critic and a translator. And they thought maybe they could maybe they could write a play, which they did. And uh, it was. a, um, it, uh, it was two and one was the name of it, or it opened in actually in London and did do badly in London, but it tanked in the U.S. They were given another chance to do another play uh, on Broadway, which uh, ran, I think, for, uh, I don't know, 120 performances. Here it is. It ran for 120 performances. And Lewis and John each earned $400 for it. <laughs> so, um, but Lewis did introduce uh, John to Virgil Thompson, who Lewis had known in Paris. Uh, they met, he introduced him at one of Constant Askew's Sunday salons. And uh, Virgil had written the music uh, and um, Gertrude Stein had written a libretto for an all-black cast in an opera and drama titled Four Saints in Three Acts. And they were looking for someone who would be a producer, who could handle uh, uh, all of the complexities that might arise, and you never know what's going to arise as a producer, and do it for free. And Lewis told Thompson that Hausman was their man. Uh, it was a uh, logistically, it was a very tough production to assemble and to carry out. And Houseman did it. He succeeded, and he gained a reputation as someone who could, who was an effective producer. Uh, then he met uh, Orson Welles, and I guess the rest is history. The two of them collaborated in the uh, uh, Mercury Theater. And uh, theirs was the war in the world's war of the world scare that happened in 1929. But they they were successful. They had a falling out after shortly after that. But Houseman went on to uh, Hollywood, where he became a very successful producer. Houseman and Lewis would reunite uh, when war broke out. They would reunite at the Office of War Information, where they were both in charge of what was the equivalent of propaganda. Could you elaborate a bit more upon uh, that period? What was it that led uh, Galantier to uh, work for the uh, OWI during the Second World War? Well, he he was uh, he had left the bank to do the translation of Saint Exupéry's latest novel, uh, which Lewis named "Wind, Sand, and Stars," and may have been a bit politicized by that. But when the war when war seemed imminent. Uh, I guess Lewis had had the calling. He was uh, recruited and he went willingly. He, he They thought that he knew the uh, French psyche and could broadcast from New York via shortwave generally. Sometimes they would send less urgent broadcasts by tape or wire, uh, magnetic wire by boat. But they could broadcast by shortwave to France and... Uh, and give them encouragement and let them know uh, that the United States was with them in spirit. If, uh, of, of course, uh, prior to Lend-Lease and then uh, the attack on the Pearl Harbor, not in fact, 
so he's involved in this, uh, you know, developing the, the, these audio broadcasts and he yet, uh, he doesn't just stay in the United States. He, he, he travels around quite a bit and he undergoes the, this, this rather horrific accident, uh, plane accident that you describe in your book. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon how, you know, you know, how he overcame that and, and what he then did afterward. Sure. It was, um, it was, uh, he was placed in charge of field operations for over, uh, overseas operations and uh, in Europe. And his base of operations was to be London. So he set out on uh, October 3rd, 1942, um, aboard one of those large flying boats. You've probably seen pictures of them. They got four large radial engines and, and the hull is meant to uh, it's a it's a water hull, the, and the, it has pon- the large pont right large pontoons on the wings. The, the name of the boat was the Excalibur. It couldn't make it from New York to London in a single uh, flight, so they flew up to Nova Scotia to Botwood Harbor, and uh, they landed there as an intermediate fueling stop at sunset, and everybody got off the plane and uh, had dinner. And uh, it was a a remote harbor and there were no lights, both for security reasons and because, well, this was Botwood, there wasn't much to light up. And the air was clear and cold and they everybody after dinner got into their seats in the uh, in the plane. And uh, if you'd like, I'll read you a short short section from the book, which actually describes this. uh, This accident, please do. Uh, the, fus- uh, the fuselage door was shut tight and Excalibur lumbered back into the harbor for takeoff. The pilot ran through the checkoff list and then uh, the takeoff checklist and then slowly pushed the throttle levers forward to full, full power. The throbbing of the Excalibur's four radial engines filled the cabin as the aircraft gathered speed, its hull splashing along the water's surface and then lifting off. But once airborne, the plane transmitted the shuddering vibrations that indicated an imminent stall. The power, the pilot lowered the nose to trade altitude for airspeed. And when the aircraft was just above the surface, pulled back on the wheel. The Excalibur rose, but once again signaled her intention to stall. Struggling to remain airborne, the pilot entered into a series of porpoising arcs and dives until the airport slammed no first, nose first into the icy water, its engines roaring. Upon impact, the fuselage broke away at the tail, and the cabin immediately flooded. Lewis, struck unconscious, was submerged, and when the divers got to him, his lungs were water-filled, and he wasn't breathing. His was one of 26 cold bodies removed from the aircraft and taken to the hospital. And he uh, survived that. He survived. There's uh, apparently an anatomical, anatomical reaction to cold water called the mammalian diving reflex. They got the cold, the the uh, salt water out of his lungs. They revived him and they brought him back to life. Lord knows how long he was he was submerged. It had to have been minutes, but uh, he made it back and. Uh, after about uh, a week or 10 days of recovery, returned to New York. Um, it was uh, it was amazing. Uh, there was one he got a letter from a friend. He got lots of letters of concern and uh, praise. And he got one letter from a friend, Burton Rasco, who, again, was a literary editor. And it says, while you were taking a forced rest, while you're while you are taking a forced rest, maybe you'd like to tackle a job. A publisher asked me if I could condense the decline and fall of the Roman Empire into a single volume of about 400 pages. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it speaks to just how well, renowned he was as a uh, editor and translator by that point, doesn't it? Yes, he was well known. Yes, it's, but, it's amazing how quickly his reputation faded because the name Galantier was well known in the 30s and 40s. Well, your book seems to suggest why that is, because 
he is involved with the OWI during the war. And as you explained, after the war, he doesn't really go back to uh, the literary world. He instead uh, transitions into working for Radio Free Europe. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, explain a bit what he was doing with uh, Radio Free Europe and how he was how he ends up playing this role in terms of the uh, Hungarian Revolution in 1956. Yes. Uh, actually, he, he did get back to some writing. We, we can get back to that if you'd like, um, namely with um, Flight to Arras uh, with uh, St. Exupéry and with uh, Antigone. But uh, th- what happened was that he was uh, he was writing for uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. They have a magazine called Foreign Affairs, and uh, he probably applied the political perspectives and judgments he acquired while with the OWI, the Office of War Information, uh, two articles that he submitted to uh, Foreign Affairs. One article titled um, America Today, a Freehand Sketch, was probably the best uh, piece of writing he did in his life. And he received letters of praise from uh, uh, Eugene Rosto, who became the dean of Yale Law School, from uh, uh, Alfred Knopf and other notables. And Shortly after that article appeared, uh, the uh, North Koreans, uh, well, invaded South Korea. And uh, at that time, at that very same time, a committee, an anti-communist committee, the uh, Free Europe Committee was created here in the United States by Alan Dulles and uh, Frank Alshul and others to tell the American story. And uh, Lewis volunteered. So let me, I'll do whatever I can to help. Well, I made him counsel to Radio Free Europe and had him write the handbook. The handbook is astounding in length and uh, specificity. It's 60 pages long. But he, uh, and it set forth the general policies. Lewis then was uh, in charge of policy and he would write, uh, what were called guidances, which have taken on a bad name recently. But uh, the the people in the Radio Free Europe stations, it was based in Munich, but there was a, a Radio Hungary, a Radio Czechoslovakia, Radio Poland. They weren't given scripts to uh, uh, simply rebroadcast. They were given guidelines, hence the guidances, uh, to matters that they could discuss. And the objective was to accurately report the news, the mismanagement that was going on in the communist bloc countries. Uh, in, uh, after, after the uh, free thing, what happened was that in, in, there was a, a divergence between the, uh, in the 1952 and 1956 political campaigns, presidential campaigns between Eisenhower and Stevenson, both candidates were saying, if, uh, if the, any of the Eastern Bloc countries, if the peoples of any of the Eastern Bloc countries organize an armed revolt, we will be with them. And uh, Lewis kind of understood that that wasn't going to happen because the Soviets had exploded their first nuclear weapon. We weren't going to expend blood and treasure in the Eastern Bloc countries. But that was the political, bear in mind that this was the, uh, the era of uh, McCarthy. And so people were trying to get to the right in their uh, political postures. Uh, what in, uh, I forget the exact date, but three things changed uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, Stalin died. Uh, Khrushchev denounced him in his, what was called a secret speech, which was soon leaked and wasn't so secret. Uh, there was a deal made with Marshal Tito in Yugoslavia, which said, we won't really interfere with your, comp- your country's business, provided you stand by us in international affairs. And uh, so there was a the thought that there might be an opportunity 
to the West to make uh, better encroachments. What I was thinking in, in, in that passage as I was reading it was was how it seemed like Galantier better understood the power of words than these people who were dealing with. They, they, that he was dealing with superiors and, and, and others who were talking about this rhetoric of, you know, we're going to stand by you. We encourage you to rise up. And Galantier knew, uh, you know, perhaps because of his own experience as an author and translator that, you know, words can have an effect that is far greater than you intend necessarily for them to have. Well, yes, but it was also the ideas behind the words that were so pernicious. Uh, It was the difference between uh, liberation, which was what Eisenhower and Stevenson were advocating, and containment. Um, There were two factions, essentially, that developed at Radio Free Europe. We had the the people with the boots on the ground, kind of, which was... Uh, Paul Hensey and um, Griffith. I'm I'm, I'm a, a, a momentary metal block in his first name, but they were um, they were on the ground. William Griffith. They were on the ground in Europe, and they knew what was going on, and they knew that the U.S. wasn't going to be sending any kind of military support there. And Lewis knew it too. On the other hand, we had these uh, armchair warriors at uh, Radio for Europe who had no experience in this kind of thing. They were political appointees and they were bellicose as could be. Um, There's a term now for it. Uh, It's not armchair warriors, but uh, they they were holding sway. And and, uh, Griffith, Henze and Lewis continually had to stop what was going well. What happened was that uh, the Hungarian desk was very weak. Its personnel had the staffing had to be remade. Everybody who was there saw the need. And Lewis proposed to a fellow named Shepherdson, who was then head of the Free Europe Committee, that he undertake that rehabilitation. And uh, Shepherdson cut him out of the loop. Not only didn't he give him that opportunity, but uh, he sidelined him as to uh, secondary policy issues. And so when the uh, when the uh, Hungarian revolution arose, the people uh, uh, took up arms. Radio Free Europe uh, ignored Lewis's guidances that they be very circumspect and not advocate armed resistance because the U.S. was not going to be coming to their aid. And uh, Radio Free Europe in Hungary lost its way. They had a fictitious general who had airtime who said, this is how you uh, organize. This is how you arm. This is how you get the radios. This is how you resist. And they said, and hold out until the United Nations uh, issues a, uh, uh, a resolution backing you. Well, the Soviet Union had veto power over the General Assembly. That was never going to happen. But the people in Hungary were misled with the result that there were tens of thousands of lives unnecessarily lost. And uh, Lewis was right. It was a uh, uh, pyrrhic uh, political victory for Lewis, but it made very little difference to the people of Hungary or to the people in uh, Radio Free Europe who knew what the right thing to do was. He, as you describe, uh, Galantier stays with Radio Free Europe until the early 1960s, and then he leaves and assumes this very prestigious position as the president of PEN America. I was wondering if you could briefly describe uh, what he does in that role and 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 how it re- reflects, in some res- many respects, a continuation of all that he's been doing over the course of his career. Sure. When uh, when Lewis joined Radio Free Europe. He signed contracts as well with the CIA and uh, and the State Department as a consultant. So he essentially had four masters. He had uh, the Free Europe Committee, Radio Free Europe, the CIA and the State Department. Uh, So he was well connected. The problem that uh, Penn America was facing was that the United States was not issuing visas to authors, to anybody who advocated communism. 
Well, there, there had never been an international con- pen congress in the United States. And Lewis wanted to have the first, and others did too. The Ford Foundation made a big contribution. So um, they, uh, they elected Lewis president of Penn America, and Lewis and Arthur Miller um, met with Pablo Neruda. Now, if, if there was an ever an, em, an emblem of uh, a communist power, writer, it was Pablo Neruda. He had a a worldwide following. His uh, poetry was known and respected worldwide, but he was a staunch, staunch communist. And they met with uh, Pablo in Europe, the the particular site eludes me right now. And uh, it was, but it was at an international Congress of Penn at that site. Arthur Miller was elected president of international Penn he had been he had protest, pro, protested against the Vietnam War. He had refused to attend uh, uh, a uh, bill signing by Johnson, creating the I believe it was the um, National Humanities uh, Foundation, or it was a the, one of the first uh, federal agencies uh, advocating for the arts and funding the arts. And he he thought he was seen as being a fair new fair person between East and West or between communist and American and the West. And uh, he was elected president over Pablo Neruda. By the way, the CIA had, uh, Pablo Neruda had been a candidate for the international presidency uh, the year before and the CIA uh, um, arranged for him not to be elected. he, he, of course, did not know this, but um, Arthur Miller, Lewis and Lewis uh, persuaded Pablo Neruda to come to the United States because his presence would allow other communist uh, poets and authors, people who wouldn't want to have the stigma of having gone to the United States to attend. Uh, Neruda said, I'm there, there's no way I'm going to get a visa. No, I've tried many times and I don't want to go through humiliation again. And Lewis promised that this time, if he tried, he would succeed. Uh, the, uh, uh, the conference was to take place in June. And as of May, uh, 1966, Lewis had not gotten visas for most (laughs) of the communist writers, uh, especially the South American writers. And uh, it was going to be a debacle. This was something that the State Department finally realized. How would it look as if this this bastion of freedom, the United States, and this organization, PEN, which stood for freedom of expression worldwide and the protection of authors, denied access to authors because of their political views. So in May, they opened the uh, the gates, and Pablo Neruda and all of the other South American uh, authors of consequence, except the author from Cuba, who was not allowed by Castro to attend, came, and it was uh, the um, it was the golden opportunity. It it gave prominence to the Latin American writers, gave them expo- worldwide exposures, which they've enjoyed ever since. I, I like the page that you have in your book. It's on page 201, where it's from the Saturday Review, and it has the pictures of foreign delegates to International Pen Conference. And the largest one is, is Pablo Neruda. It's, a, it's almost a, a, a statement of triumph, uh, of, 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 of uh, Galantier's triumph, of, of you know, having made this possible. Yes. And uh, Neruda was certainly the largest draw. Um, both they they he he gave a Friday night reading at the YMCA in New York. Every room was filled and overflowing onto the street. And uh, Lewis had create had uh, had a uh, uh, a dinner a a, um, cruise, a dinner cruise one night where all of the participants could come. And everybody was crowded around Pablo Neruda and Arthur and uh, and uh, Arthur Miller's wife, by the way, who was a photographer and quite stunning, <laughs> uh, plus um, an, an extraordinarily competent photographer uh, crowded around them. So 
the ship was constantly listing wherever they walked. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, I am actually working on um, my profession, which is as an arbitrator. I'm, uh, I am, this was my one-off book uh, because it was a relative. And as an arbitrator, I... Uh, uh, right now, my two biggest cases are where um, where there's no right to strike and the union and management can't agree on the terms of employment. So they bring me in to look at what the factors are, and I recommend what those terms of employment should be. It sounds simple in principle, but it gets very complicated and emotional, in fact. Mm-hmm. Well, for a one-off book, I think it was an excellent effort. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with us, uh, Mark, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Bye.